You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 85, and we are in a series, a Christmas series, an Advent series called Let Men Their Songs Employ. Our vision for that series is that we would use the songs that we sing, and we sung a lot of songs this morning, amen to that, that we would use the songs we sing to fill our hearts with and focus our eyes on our Savior. As we continue to to look into that, to crack open another hymn and examine it, uh, while you're turning to Psalm 85, I have a question for you. If you were to have walking theme music for one week, Meaning, as you go about your business, anytime that you walk somewhere or drive somewhere, outside of your control, this music just starts playing all around you. If you had to have that happen to you for one week, um, what type of music would you prefer? I'm going to give you two different types here. You have to choose between them. I'm going to have, just a moment here, I'm going to have Phil play a track, just a couple seconds of a track for you, and this will will represent one type of music that you could listen to. Um, you may recognize it. You might probably don't know its name. The song is called Gymnopédie Nombre Un, and that is from French composer Eric Satie. You probably know the song, though. Let's, let's listen to that. Maybe this would be your walking around music. Let's hear it. Oh. Well, that's pretty nice. It's gentle. It's calm. It's maybe hopeful. And yet, it's a bit serious. I could get some mileage out of that, I think. Okay. That, that represents a type of music you could listen to. Now let's hear our second track. Which of these types of music would you prefer to have playing all of the time as you walk around everywhere? Let's hear this other type of music. Okay. All right, now, now take a moment. Take that in. Compare them. Um, take a moment to decide. Don't rush to it. Which type of music would you prefer to spend a week of your life listening to? I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. I feel like the answer is obvious, but why? Why is it so unanimous? Normally, if you ask a group this size a question about their preference about something, you'd at least get some variety. Why is this unanimous? Why doesn't anyone want to listen to tense, scary orchestra music for an intended period of time? And some of you may have some, some cute ideas of what, what you think that might be like. Call me again in three hours once you've listened to nothing but that chord for three solid hours of walking around. Why don't people actually want to listen to that for an extended period of time? It's because those sounds, the ones that were written by that composer, they stir up something in the human soul. Those tones, those specific notes that they, they pulled out there, it's something universal about that. It's not just because those sounds remind you of a scary movie. No, the composer of the scary movie soundtrack picked those because they make you feel those feelings. It's universal. It's something about the human nature. It makes you feel a little tense, a little uncomfortable. That's the point of it. By the nature of those, those sounds grinding against each other in your ear, even a non-musician can tell you how that kind of music makes you feel. I want, to take, I want to take just a moment to let this sink in. I'm going to go back to the piano for a second. Okay, a moment to let this sink in. Those notes, here's our, uh, here's our scary music here. Nope, nope. Ooh, that's a little loud, isn't it? Okay, these two notes right here. 
does that make you feel? This is called, this is called a tritone. In your, in your soul, deep within you as a human, you want to hear this. Oh, this is, here comes the bride. Oh, this is a wonderful thing. Or maybe, maybe you want to hear this. That's just a half step off from that note. Twinkle, twinkle. This is, this is good. But this, ah, something is wrong. Something is wrong. You, I can't explain to you what it is. You can't explain to me what it is, but you know that something is wrong here. It makes you feel off. It makes you feel unwell. You get negative feelings. It's a discordant sound. There was, in fact, there was a couple hundred year period in the United States and really across the world where musicians knew, they just all agreed, that this, this interval of notes was so obviously wrong to play that it was morally wrong to play. It was thought, especially in church music, it was thought that if you intentionally used God's good gift that he gave to you of music, and you intentionally played these evil-sounding tones and created these bad feelings on purpose, that would necessarily make Satan happy. Like, there's, there's, that, you can see why that train of thought happens. And th therefore, if Satan is pleased by you creating this discord, demons must be attracted to it, and you may even summon them by playing those notes. Now, that's not exactly the best of theology, and I don't think that I just summoned demons just now by playing those notes for you. And yet, at the same time, we can be quick to dismiss that, but if you played, if you just put in earbuds and you played gloomy, dissonant, evil-sounding, intentionally evil-sounding music in your headphones day in and day out, I don't think that would be good for you. I don't, it would do harm to you, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's not good for you. It's bad for your soul. And so conversely from that, there is something good about beautiful music that lifts your spirits and pulls you towards positive things. Again, I'm not here to explain to you exactly why that's true. I don't think I could. But the fact that it's true is important for our study in Psalm 85 and our study of the hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. What you choose to listen to, what you choose to pay attention to, how you let that into your heart, that can make an incredible difference in your outlook and your thoughts and your direction in life. So our big idea from the text this morning is going to be this. Use the gift of music to let God's peace drown out the discord all around you. Before we get to that, a quick bit about our author of our, our, our hymn this morning, our poem. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is one of the most famous American poets. He wrote the hymn that we now know as I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He wrote it as a poem before it was a song. And he was writing during a severely tragic time in his life. The nation was just finishing its first year of a bloody civil war. And he had just become a widower for the second time after failing to save his wife from an accidental fire. A fire in which he was left with severe burns and facial scars that he couldn't even attend his wife's funeral. At the start of Advent season, December 1st, 1863, when everyone else is trying to brighten their dispositions and hope in their savior, he received a telegram that told him that his oldest son, Charles, who was a Union officer, was severely wounded after taking a bullet to the face. And he may not recover, and if he did, it would likely be that he would never walk again. It was safe to say that Longfellow's faith 
was challenged that Christmas. He began to sink into depression. And on Christmas Day, he fought against the pain and doubt that was rising up all around him, everywhere he looked, and he wrote. He wrote the poem that is printed on the half sheet in your notes this morning. Uh, Those won't be on the screen. They'll be in front of you so you can refer to them as we go along reading the psalm. And this poem reads like a psalm. As I said last week, each Sunday, we're we're taking a Christmas hymn, a well-known Christmas hymn, and we're interposing that with a reading of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that shares its major themes with the lyrics of that hymn. So we're going to read Psalm 85 and interpose that reading with the reading of the poem that led to the hymn that we now know, and then we'll sing that at the very end. But let's start with the poem. <laughs> In all of this, I actually didn't bring the poem up with me. Uh, could someone hand me one of those? <laughs> Thank you. I thought I had one. I don't. Thank you. We'll read just the first three stanzas of this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, The world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Put a marker there. Let's read our psalm. Just the first three verses. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Remember, our big idea from the text this morning is this. Use the gift of music to let God's peace drown out the discord all around you. And the first way that we see these two men, the psalmist and the poet, the first way we see them doing that is this. Rehearse the truth you already know. Rehearse the truth you already know. This psalm, Psalm 85, is written in the years after the Babylonian captivity when God had restored Israel to their land and they started the long project of rebuilding Jerusalem and then trying to figure out how they're going to rebuild the temple. And while they're still trying to rebuild the walls to give them protection, they're still vulnerable while this is happening. And enemies are starting to surround them, realizing how vulnerable they are. On top of that, they're in the middle of a drought, and they're running out of food and water. The author of this psalm and Longfellow both understood this first principle. Rehearse the truth you already know. When you are surrounded by suffering, when you feel abandoned, when your hope is dwindling, when you feel yourself starting to sink, one of the first things you need to do, if you can, is get your bearings. Which way is up? Your world is spinning chaotically in every direction. You need to remember which way is north. How do you do this? Well, one, you ground yourself in truth. You rehearse the truth you already know. The psalmist recounts the way that God had cared for them by bringing them out of captivity and back into the land that he promised them. And he ties it to a spiritual truth. He says, 
you forgave the iniquity of your people. God had not sent them into exile for no reason. They were in exile because they had turned their backs on God. They had worshipped idols. Their sin brought judgment. And God allowed foreign kings to come and take them captive. Their sin, their iniquity, that was the reason they were in captivity. And therefore, their return to the land, God opening their prison bars and setting them back to their promised land, that was a sign of God's repentance to his people after seeing See, sorry, seeing repentance and extending forgiveness. That's a sign of what's going on here. So for most, most of our sudden problems in life as New Testament believers, rehearsing this foundational truth that our sins are taken care of, for most problems in life, even in a moment, this truth, rehearsing this truth might just be enough. You get cut off in traffic uh, some angry person yells at you for no good reason. You catch COVID for the ninth time. Uh, you get a flat tire or worse. You, you total your car. You lose your job. A relationship falls through. Any of those sudden problems could tempt you to have, certainly to have a bad day, maybe a bad week, bad month, a whole bad season. But all of them, if you're seeing things rightly, if you remember things rightly, all of them should snap like a twig under the weight of the goodness of remembering this promise, that God himself has done this. He has covered all your sin. He has earned a place in heaven for you. Quick example of that. When I was in college, I worked at a Chipotle Mexican grill, and it was a college town. My uh, manager and many of my coworkers were believers, and we closed at 10 o'clock. A lot of times we had a line out and past the door at 10 o'clock, and sometimes we didn't get out of there after washing and cleaning dishes and cleaning things up to like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And especially if we were short-staffed, it would go even later. And one of those nights, we locked the door, and we turned around and looked at the mountains of dishes and garbage everywhere. And I looked at my manager, and as this is such a freshman in Bible college thing to say, but I said, this is pretty bad. But you know what would be worse? If we had to pay for our sins when we died. <laughs> and, and she rolled her eyes, rightly. But then she smiled. Rightly, because she knew I was right. She knew that she couldn't help but let that truth ground her a little bit. And so it changed our disposition for the rest of that shift. We washed dishes and scrubbed and mopped while blasting worship music and hymns and like singing worship karaoke really loud and embarrassingly and laughing through the wee hours of the morning. And we had one non-Christian guy who was on that shift with us and he thought we were insane. But it was the best closing shift ever. Remembering this truth, it did that for us. It grounded us and it pointed us in the right direction. The truth of our sins having been taken care of is the most powerful thing to remember. But there's more to remember than just the fact that we have been forgiven. That's very much from our perspective. You're, you're right to think of it from your own perspective, but this truth reminds us about what kind of God our God is. In Psalm 85, the people of Israel are in deep, deep trouble. Their city is in ruins. They're surrounded by enemies. They're beginning to starve because God did not send them any rain. And the psalmist chooses to start here. Not just with the fact that they've been saved, but what that says about God. I'm a paraphrase here. He said, God, you are a restorer. I've seen you do it. God, you are a forgiver. God, you are gracious and merciful. Even though we deserve wrath, we don't even deserve to be here. We deserve to be in exile and die in exile. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your righteous anger, and you had mercy on us. 
That's all on you, God. You're amazing. That's where he starts. In the midst of this chaos and suffering, that's where he chooses to start. He focuses not just on his own salvation and the reality of that, but on the merciful God who granted that salvation. He states all of that. And yet you can almost hear, you can almost hear the but coming. Because <laughs> you know this is not going to stay happy forever. You can sense where this is going. It doesn't go there yet. The psalmist is first rehearsing the truth that he knows about God. Regardless of what's about to happen to us, he says, this is the track record of our God. This is who he's been. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can change who he has proven himself to be. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow does something similar. You may be familiar with a version of the song. In fact, I think this is the version we're going to sing later. A version of the song that takes that third stanza and puts it near the very end. But in the original poem, the first three stanzas are all positive. He says, Longfellow says, the bells are playing old, familiar carols. Old, meaning that they've been around a long time. They predate him. And familiar, meaning he knows them well. He has known them for years. And, and these carols are repeating these types of words, these words. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's how the King James Bible chose to translate what the angels sang to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born. I looked it up. Um, there doesn't seem to be a specific Christmas hymn that he's quoting here. The one hymn that people know about that has these words is this one. <laughs> so he, he's not quoting some other hymn. So he's not saying, I hear the bells playing that specific carol that has these exact words. He's saying generally all those carols, all those old carols, their, their summary is this, Christmas season, Christmas spirit, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The bells are, are signifying the hope and the peace of Christmas. And he says that they're being played from the belfries of all Christendom. Every single church in the world is in agreement here. Jesus coming to bring peace on earth, that's a glorious truth that is worth singing about. Jesus came to bring the ultimate peace to this earth. That's peace with God. An end to humanity's rebellious civil war against its creator. That's why the angels showed up in force the night when Jesus was born. This was something new. This was something big. Mankind can be reconciled with God now because of what this baby will grow up to do. And this good news, this gospel, it results from his substitutionary death and burial and resurrection. This gospel, which starts now that Jesus is here, and it starts in fullness. It's the only thing that can truly break down all the cultural and ethnic barriers, the sinful divisions among mankind. It's the only thing that can really break through those and bring peace among men. And so, it's a very popular verse, especially, especially for quasi-Christians and liberal churches that just want everyone to get along, and that's their greatest desire. It's a very good kumbaya verse. Um, but even though a lot of people just use it as a slogan, peace on earth, goodwill to men, it's real. It's made possible and real by the gospel of Jesus. And that is where Longfellow chooses to start. He has suffered loss after loss. His country is coming apart at the seams. He just now, this is, this is December. Winter is really going to start setting in soon. He just watched the troops bunker down in their barracks for winter. And he knows, and all of they know, that as soon as the ice starts to thaw, they will be marching right back out into some field to slaughter their brothers and be slaughtered by their brothers. He just watched that happen and he knows what's coming. One of those soldiers is his own son, who might even be dead right now. He doesn't even know. 
Longfellow has a lot of pain that he could just let fly from his pen. Maybe he did. Maybe he wrote a bunch of other dark poems on that Christmas day. But this is the one that he chose to publish. This is the one he wanted people to remember. This is the one he wanted to represent the thoughts that he had on that day. A poem that begins with the sweet and sure memory of how God has visited this earth to bring an end to the greatest war. He's proclaiming the same thing that the psalmist is. Our God is a forgiver. Our God is gracious. Our God is good and he has been good. This, this first step, rehearse the truth you already know. It's especially helpful if you've just been punched in the gut by this world, like the psalmist, like Longfellow. Rehearsing the truth, it has a powerful way of helping you get your feet back under you after you've been knocked down. But psalms like this and poems like this are not only for that person. This is for everyone. This is for you, believer. Because even if you're not feeling crushed right in this very moment by the afflictions of the sinful world around you, you are still surrounded by it. If you walked into church this morning generally feeling okay, maybe the first truth that you need to remember this morning isn't that God is good and gracious and forgiving. You need to remember that, but maybe that's not the first one you need to remember. Maybe the first truth that you need to remember is that there is an enemy at work in this world, and he's got your number, and that you're currently at war with him, and he has you surrounded and outnumbered, and you need to call for reinforcements today. Maybe that's the first thing you need to hear. Did, did you walk here this morning, and were you aware of the fact that your soul has an enemy and he's smarter and stronger than you? If you're in Christ, he can't get you. <laughs> you're not ultimately ever going to be gotten by him. Jesus took that victory already. But the enemy, enemy will happily settle for sabotaging the vibrancy of your faith one thread at a time if he can. So you're, not just, you're also not just surrounded by a sinful world. You are carrying around this sin nature that the enemy uses to gain a foothold in your life. And you can't stop him on your own. This is one of the big reasons that one of our family values is not simply prayer, but fervent prayer. You need God's help to do this. You need God's help to forgive that church member who has sinned against you. You need God's help to forgive that family member who has hurt you. You need God's help to feed your desire for the things of God and to starve your desire for earthly things. We pray wartime prayers. We pray like we depend on the Lord to deliver us from all the effects of sin because we know that only he can do it. When you remember God's truth in prayer or in song, it is a weapon of war against the enemy. So whether you are reeling from the effects of the curse of sin, like Longfellow, or whether you just came in riding high this morning, feeling like everything's good, you need to constantly be rehearsing truth that you already know in both of those circumstances and everything in between. And music has a special way of doing that for us. You can, and I would recommend that you do, you can look at yourself in the mirror and preach to yourself every morning and ground yourself in truth that way. That's great. But sometimes the way that the poetry and melody of music the way that it hits you, it has a way of cutting deeper into your heart than any memorized truth can. That's why when Longfellow was being crushed by this world, he wrote this piece of beautiful art instead of just sitting on his couch and crying for the hundredth time. 
That's why the psalmist wrote this psalm. Music, beautiful, truthful, harmonious music has a way of cutting through all the nonsense, all the wrong thinking in our heads, and speaking truth directly into our souls. That's what we're trying to do every Sunday morning when we worship in song together. That's what we just tried to do. Every week, when I'm not preaching, when I'm leading in music, my prayer is that we remember, remember what's true. I try to ask you questions like, who is your God? What is your God like? What do you know about him? Who has he made you to be? What has he done for you? Remember what he's done for you. What is he doing for you right now? Where is he? What should all of that mean for you? How should all that make you feel? How should you respond? Come into our times of singing with these kinds of thoughts and with the answers to these kinds of questions, and you'll be amazed at what the Lord does with it. Even if you're not really a singer, even if you don't consider yourself a musician, your passionate worship is a weapon for driving back the enemy in every sphere of your life, not just in some abstract battleground way out there, in your life, in your personal walk, in your family, at your, at your job, at your school, in the world, in Chennai, India. Your fervent prayers and your passionate worship are a weapon for driving back discordant sounds of the enemy in every area of your life. If you are blessed by a song on a Sunday morning, and I'm so grateful for feedback from our congregation when we sing, especially like a new song and someone just lets us know that it blessed them. My encouragement to you, if you are particularly blessed by a song on a Sunday morning, we have this beautiful gift from God called Spotify. Look it up, put it on repeat, drive everywhere with it. Let it sink in. Get it into all the cracks and crevices of your heart. Drink it deeply. Feed your soul with it. That's what these men, in the hardest times of their life, that's what these men were trying to do. Both Longfellow and the psalmist, they're resetting their compasses, reminding themselves of truth. But then, they both shift direction. They both start talking about the occasion for their writing in the first place. They're going through something hard. So secondly, we will acknowledge the brokenness and discord we're experiencing. Our big idea was that we would, that we would listen to the voice of the Lord, that we would listen to his peace and have it drown out the discord all around us. The second way of accomplishing that is acknowledging the brokenness and discord you're experiencing. Let's read the fourth fifth and sixth stanzas of the poem. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Quick pause, those black accursed mouths are the mouths of the cannons themselves, shouting out this loud and terrible sound that drowns out the carols of these bells. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent. Rent, past tense of rend, which means to tear, to rip, to break the hearthstones of a continent. The hearthstone is the center point of a home. He's saying, this is more than just my own family that's torn up by this. This war is destroying every family in America. Even the Christian households that know the truth 
It says, it, it rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Even the Christian households, the households that know the truth, they're trying to believe it, they are forlorn right now. The whole nation is grieving. And here he is at the bottom. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's so beaten down that he even allows himself to call God a liar. There is no peace on earth, I said. Yeah, I know. I know the angels sang when Jesus was born. This is what they said. But somewhere between then and now, something has gone wrong, hasn't it? I look around me and I don't see peace on earth. I don't see goodwill to men. I see the world is on fire. The sinful hatred in the hearts of mankind has taken over and it reigns supreme everywhere I look. It mocks the song of Christmas. Longfellow started by rehearsing truth, but that does not mean that he's going to sugarcoat the way that he's feeling. He does not bottle up those thoughts and stuff them back in the closet somewhere. He lets them out. He lets his audience, and therefore he lets the Lord know what he's wrestling with. He fully acknowledges the discord that he's experiencing all around him. Remember from the beginning, those harsh tones that make you feel uneasy. He's saying, God, that's where I'm at. That's all I can hear. I know your truth, but this horrible sound is blasting in my ears, and I don't even know what to do. Again, this poem is not a psalm, but it's written like one. Longfellow was a student of the scriptures. He knew how psalms were structured. Let's hear the psalmist do the same thing. Back to Psalm 85 in verse 4. The psalmist writes, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. So unlike Longfellow, the psalmist does not get specific with what he and the people are facing. You have to do some other homework to find out that context that I told you about the drought and the enemies surrounding and the broken walls. The psalmist makes desperate requests and he asks God direct questions and some of them are pretty bold. He says, put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? I don't know if you ever tried that one out in an argument. I don't recommend it. Stop being angry with me. What, are you going to be mad at me forever? Like, that would not go well in a human relationship. And it's also not really the tone that the psalmist is using here. This is not frustration and annoyance. This is desperation. He's implying that this is how they feel. It feels like God has turned his back on them. It feels like God is going to be angry with them forever. He's letting God know that this is where his thoughts are going. Hopelessness. Despair. There's nothing more that fits that description than God abandoning you forever. You're right to despair if that's what's going on. Remember, they are back. They, they were in exile, but they are back in the supposed promised land. And they are the generation that God was kind to. They're the ones that were freed from exile. They were allowed to come back to their home. But now it seems like God is just going to abandon them at the last minute and leave them to die a shameful death either from thirst 
and hunger, or from a ragtag bunch of barbarians that are just going to march over their broken walls and kill them in their sleep. God, why would you take us out of captivity to let us die here? That's what's on their minds. I would say that as a church, we have an above average amount of teaching under our belts about lament. We've studied that as a church on more than one occasion. What it is, how it works. You should know by now that the psalmist here is not just venting. He's not just yelling at God. And if you're going to lament, it's not only going to be just you yelling at God. If you're going to lament, it might include that. It might include you saying things that you're feeling even though you know they're not true, or rather, you know they shouldn't be true. It might include those ugly things, but lament is more than just that. Both the psalmist and Longfellow go to that deep place of despair before God, and they let us watch them do it because they desperately want God to lead them out of it. They acknowledge the brokenness and the discord that they're experiencing because they want God to rescue them from it. Believer, you are not doing yourself any favors by refusing to look those dark things in the face. Both of these authors wrote during a time of crisis, but you don't have to be in the middle of a crisis to choose to invite God into the hardest, most painful, and most terrifying dark corners of your mind. We all have those subjects that are difficult to think about things we'd rather not think about, those elephants in the room. It might be doubt or unsure thoughts about something you've been taught in the scriptures. You know you're supposed to believe it. To be a good Christian, you know you're supposed to believe it, but you can't see how it makes sense. Maybe it's pain and trauma from your past that you've never really worked all the way through with God. Maybe it's something so terrible that it makes you doubt that God could even be all-powerful or all-good. My friends, you need to hear this. From the mouth of the Lord this morning, he can handle your worst. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your tears. He can handle your bitterness. You cannot scare him away. He can handle the worst thrashing and flailing that your soul can produce. He's strong enough to hold you while you get all of that out and still be holding you at the end. If a crisis has forced you here, trust him with your lament. But don't wait for a crisis to square your accounts with God. Clear the air. But don't just rip off the bandit and start yelling at him. Do it the way that the psalmists do it. Start by rehearsing truth that you know. Let God know where you hope this process will end, then acknowledge the brokenness, the discord, that feeling, God, this is not right. Acknowledge it. Do that in his presence. Do that in prayer. Do that in study and reading of the scriptures. Do that in conjunction with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as that process goes on, as you continue to acknowledge the pain before him, you continue to believe his promises as you aim all of those communications at God, what tends to happen at some point along the way is a gradual turning of your heart. Your anger and fear turn into desperation, and eventually that desperation turns into 
humble cries for mercy. And it's there that the Lord is faithful to meet you. The psalmist ends this section with another desperate request. He says, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Whatever attitude the psalmist had in those first audacious questions, the attitude here is humble and dependent with even a little glimmer of hope breaking in. He calls upon the steadfast love of the Lord. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is chesed. Your Bible might translate it as loving kindness or mercy or loyal love. I normally don't care to teach you Greek or Hebrew words. They don't make anything any more spiritual. But this word is special to me. My Hebrew professor was a little old man, and he always had a smile on his face. He always made people laugh. And he, he had been walking with the Lord for longer than I had been alive, and he had been studying Hebrew for almost as long. And it was always a fun and a lighthearted time in his class. He made a very difficult thing very fun and, and easy. He just overflowed with the joy of the Lord. Maybe you know some people like that. And it's just spilled into everything from vocabulary quizzes, translations. But when he first got around to explaining the word chesed, his whole demeanor changed. His voice lowered, his eyes widened, and he said, gentlemen, you can study Hebrew for the rest of your life, and you will never get to the bottom of this word. And it struck me. It struck me. This is, this word is, it's a type of covenantal love that only God is capable of creating, producing, and maintaining. This is Jeremiah 32 kind of language, covenantal language, where God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. Do you get that? If you're in Christ, if you have partaken of the new covenant in his blood, which we just symbolized with communion, if you have put all your faith in Jesus, he has covered your sin. He has entered you into this eternal covenant that God has with his people. And that means he will not, will not, he will not turn away from doing good to you. Never. His love for you is loyal. His love for you is steadfast. It's immovable. He's made a covenant, a promise to you. And if you know anything about this God, he's a God who keeps his promises. After all of the crying out that the psalmist does, he shows us that his heart has started to turn. He calls upon the steadfast love of God. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. When you experience the effects of sin, your own sin, the sin of others against you, you can take that pain to the Lord. He knows what to do with it. Trust him with it. And watch as he starts to turn your heart. The last thing we see our psalmist and our poet do is this. And bear with me on this sentence. Hearken to the all-surpassing peace that the Lord sings over you. I acknowledge that that sentence that is going to be on the screens there, that might be nothing but word salad to you at this moment. I promise we will break it down. But for now, let's set that aside while we read the rest of the psalm. Let's see how all of this ends. Psalm 85, verse 8. 
Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and, his, and make his footsteps away. But now, here in verse 8, he's no longer using us language. He's shifting and saying, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. This is him letting us see behind the curtain. Up to this point, he's been sort of a, a, a priestly representative on behalf of the people. But for this moment, it's completely personal. He's not representing anybody. He's just letting us hear the direction of his thoughts. And where are his thoughts going? He is suddenly overcome with confidence. It's as if he can hear the Lord speaking peace to his people. He asks himself, he asks himself this question, when God looks at us, when God looks at his people, and he opens his mouth to speak, what comes out? What does he say? And in an instant, he knows for a fact what God would say. He speaks peace to his people. I know that's what he does. So I know that's what he's doing. He's doing it right now, and it's as if I can hear it. Speaking peace is not just well-wishing. It is proclaiming, declaring peace. The Hebrew word here is one that you probably already know. It's shalom. And shalom is not merely calmness or lack of anxiety or quiet. It is total well-being, harmony, wholeness on a spiritual level. It is the opposite of discord and brokenness. That feeling that discordant tones give you, that something's not right, I don't know what it is, but something's not right, the opposite of that. These tones are harmonious. You say, everything's right. I don't know why, I don't know how, but everything is right. But with the Lord Shalom, you do know why and you do know how. The opposite of discord and brokenness is what the Lord God is speaking to his people. In an instant then, the psalmist is filled with assurance. He just knows that God's disposition toward him is a constant proclamation of shalom. He voiced his lament. God let him talk. God gave him the floor. And the moment that he finishes the lament and listens for God's reply, he is overwhelmed with the sense that God is actively and authoritatively proclaiming peace to him. Because that's what God does with his people. He loves them with a steadfast love. He covers their sin. He forgives their iniquity. Of course he's speaking peace to them right now. And suddenly the psalmist can hear it. That's what the word hearken means. That's why I put it in the point here. It means to listen up. It means to pay attention. It's the audible form of the word behold. You suddenly behold something. You see it. You look at it clearly. Hearken is you suddenly hear it, you pay attention, you listen up. If you've ever wondered what the beginning of that other famous Christmas song is trying to say, hark the herald angels sing, 
What is going on there grammatically? <laughs> Most people don't really pay too much attention to it. It's two sentences. One of them is, hark! Exclamation point, end of sentence. Hark! Behold! Listen! Pay attention to what? The herald angels sing. The announcing angels from heaven, the heavenly announcers, are singing. What are they singing? Glory to the newborn king. Pay attention to that. In the, in the same way as if angels just suddenly burst into view, you need to hearken to, you need to pay attention to, listen to the voice of your God and maker as he speaks over you. Because if you're his child, he's doing it right now. Listen, hark, pay attention. Zephaniah chapter 3 talks about the Lord's disposition toward his people. And he says, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here's an important question. Does your soul know what that sounds like? I don't mean that literally. If your earthly ears heard the voice of God singing loudly, I don't think you would exist anymore. But does your soul know the sound? Is it familiar with the sound of your God singing over it? Does your soul know, does your soul remember the sound of Jesus, your great high priest? interceding for you at this very moment and speaking peace over you. Because the metaphor here is that the psalmist has suddenly decided to listen. He says, let me hear, let me hear the voice of God on this. Let me hear the words of my maker. He starts to listen. He chooses to listen. And as soon as he does, he's convinced that the Lord loves him has good in store for him and will not turn away from doing him good. If you've been with us during our whole study in Colossians, you have heard us talking about growing in our dependence, devotion, and delight in Jesus. And if you were kind of unsure as to where to start on that whole delight thing, allow me to firmly recommend this piece of biblical imagery to you. He speaks peace to you. He sings over you. Listen to it. Hearken to it. Put that image, add that to your repertoire, in the back of your mind. As you are worshiping the Lord, as you are trying to let those, those truths that you're singing, and even the, the harmonious tones at which they were written, as you try to let those sink into your heart, imagine this picture. The Lord your God is right now singing over you. I try as hard as I can to get you to sing songs of love to your God. Know that he sings songs of love to you. What does that do for you? Make this, this truth of God's peace proclaimed over you, make that your everyday soundtrack. If that comes in the form of a literal song, amen. If it comes in the form of you reminding yourself of scripture, memorizing it, practicing it, rehearsing it, preaching it to yourself, talking about it with one another, amen to all of those. Make the Peace that's proclaimed by God over you. Make that your everyday soundtrack. After choosing to listen to the voice of the Lord, the psalmist just goes up and up and up in proclamations. 
about what he knows that God will do in the future. He says, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Just a minute ago, this same man felt abandoned by God. God felt very far away, but now he says, God, surely, surely, definitely, without a doubt, your salvation is near to those who fear you. That glory may dwell in our land. For the Jewish people, God's salvation and the well-being of the land of Israel, they were closely tied together. And then he just goes off in verses 10 and 11. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. I hope you can hear the exuberance in his voice as he writes this. There are a number of ways that you could interpret this block of poetic language, but I just I can't escape the simple idea, all the directional language here, that all the perfect and wonderful attributes of God are just coming together in one from every direction. He's describing what that salvation will look like. Again, for an Old Testament Jewish author, he's looking ahead. He's looking forward to the day when the Messiah will come. Part of what he's saying, he's describing that day when the land of Israel, for his people, it's, it's all brought together into a beautiful place, no longer an awful place. The Lord promised that he would make an end of the people's sin, and he would reign as king over them. He's looking toward that. But what he doesn't understand is that this is going to happen in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. The righteousness and justice of God that cannot overlook sin, are on full display as Jesus, the perfect, steadfast love-showing offering from God, takes the punishment that we deserve and upholds God's righteousness and his justice while showing mercy. That God can be just and at the same time justify the ungodly. All those things are coming together on display at the cross. The psalmist is just reveling in the beauty of God's salvation. And he's been swept up in exaltation and praise. And that future salvation that he knows is coming, it's as good as if it's already here. Choosing to listen to what the voice of God says about his people has brought him peace, shalom, well-being, wholeness, harmony. This is why the Apostle Paul says that the peace of God, it surpasses all understanding. Don't you get the sense as you're reading this, this, this block of poetry here? He's not even trying to make logical arguments anymore. He's writing poetry. He's writing songs. His heart has been called up to heaven in this moment. And he's just singing. Let's check back in with Longfellow as we bring our time to a close. Let's read the last stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. At the end of the hymn, the sound of the bells wins out. Either, if we want to pull this apart, either the bells got louder and drowned out the sound of the cannons and the war and the pain everywhere. Either the bells got louder and drowned them out, or they outlasted the sounds of war. The bells just kept tolling and eventually the cannons dissipated and all he could hear is the bells. Or they both continued to play at maximum volume and the bells got through to him. And he fixed his attention so sharply on the bells that the discord of the world around him seemed to fall silent and all he can hear is the proclamation of God's truth washing over him. 
My vote is that last one. Because notice here, these bells start saying different words. Remember, he was just summarizing the content of the Christmas hymns when he just said generally that they're saying peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's not like the bells changed to play a different, better song. All we can see happening is his attention shifts back to the song of the bells. Like an alarm bell, a wake-up call. He hearkens to, he pays attention to, he listens up to the song of peace that is still being proclaimed over him. He said, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. This is a, declara- a, a declarative statement, a declaration. And, and in there, there's a word we don't often use anymore, peel, peel with an A. The only sounds that we describe with peal are loud bells and thunder, like a thunderclap. You may have heard the phrase, a peal of thunder. It's a loud, sudden sound that ruptures across the air and dominates the soundscape. Have you ever been standing near a a clock tower when it tolls the hour? If you were having a conversation, that's put on pause until the bells are done ringing. They take precedence. They win out. They drown it all out. And that's what's happening here. He's hearkening to the sound of the church bells, the sound of the truth that God's people everywhere are proclaiming. He's listening to what they're singing to him. Like the psalmist was, he was just a moment ago overrun with grief. But now he's choosing to listen to the song of peace that has been there this whole time. And he's hit with sudden confidence That regardless of what he's seeing all around him, God is not dead. God is not absent. God is not asleep. He has not abandoned this world. He has fresh assurance that the wrong will fail. That God will prevail. He's assured that when the Lord speaks peace to his people, he does so with authority. And his voice overrides all the works of the enemy. My friends, we need to appropriate this truth. We need to take hold of it for ourselves. And, and not just in the moments of singing. I pray that it happens in the moments of singing together. But not just there. This soundtrack needs to play all the time in your life. That's another way of looking at what abiding is. Staying in Him. Staying in step with your Creator, with your Savior. Listening to what He has to say. More than you listen to what the world is telling you. What you're telling yourself walk in that this week. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.